0: the Good Chris Lovian Talks podcast. I'm Levi. And I'm Chris. Thank you so much for joining us this week. On this podcast, we select one talk a week to help each one of us get the Bible in our daily news feed. We post at the start of each week for you to listen with a short intro beforehand to kind of set the stage for the talk you're about to hear. And now let's hear more about this week's talk. For this week, we're listening to another exhortation that was given by Brother Jason Hensley down at the San Diego Ecclesia, and this was actually a class that was recommended a while ago, and to take the blame on this one, I misplaced the download that had been sent to us to to listen to this class, but it had happened after I had uploaded it into my podcast player to to listen to it before we published it to the podcast, and when I finally did get around to listening to it, I absolutely loved it. This is a, a really excellent exhortation that Brother Jason gave, and so... Thankfully and uh, gratefully to the person who originally sent me the link, they were able to refine the link and send it to us again so that we could republish it. So this was an exhortation that uh, I really enjoyed and really wanted to share with everyone. In this exhortation, Brother Jason is sort of building on a study that he did using some notes from his grandfather and also just in preparation to write a book on the atonement. And kind of works as a really good companion to the class that we posted a few weeks back by Brother Harry Tennant on the topic of the atonement. And in, in Harry's class, he was focusing on understanding what the atonement is and how that changes the way that we act toward each other and the way that you live your life. So living the atonement in your daily life. Jason's exhortation, he does a really good job of underlining how important the atonement is and how it impacts so many of what we would consider to be first principles in what it means to believe in God. And he starts it by doing a really powerful juxtaposition with what mainstream Christianity views the atonement as and kind of looking at how you could very easily misinterpret what the atonement is. And Jason does a really excellent job at this. He's both taking from kind of the, you can feel him kind of get worked up as he talks about what mainstream Christianity has turned the atonement into and how misunderstanding that kind of snowballs and has impacts far-reaching throughout all the first principles that we understand and instead if you don't have the what the atonement is and how god used the atonement to bring salvation to us then you sort of flip the narrative and how we view god so instead of god being this loving merciful god who sacrificed his son to open the way to salvation to to all of us he instead it twists what christ sacrificed to show a vengeful hateful god who was so upset with us for the sin that we had done, and the anger that he should have directed at us was instead directed at this sinless man who also was his son and completely kind of changes the narrative and kind of how you would view God, which, as Jason was making the point, was uh, really, really powerful, um, just to kind of have it laid out. This exhortation was one that I was really excited about when it got recommended. I listened to it, and about halfway through, I was like, oh, this is going to be a good one. I, I can't wait to share it with everyone. So... As I mentioned, this one was a recommendation, so please keep those coming in. It's always good to, to hear from people what, what they find, what they like, making sure that we share it so it's not just things that Levi and I stumble upon. With that, we'll turn it over to Brother Jason for his exhortation on the Father and the Cross.
1: Today, what we're going to do is talk about the atonement in its relationship to God and where, where the Father's role was in all of this. And what we're going to see is something amazing. We're going to see together. That God's role in the atonement, that the the atonement focuses completely on God. It focuses the attention back to him. It was all about him. The atonement was about God's glory, God's honor, God's exaltation. That's what we're going to do together today. Uh, To begin, I want to read something to you. This is what most of the world believes about the atonement. I got it on here, so give me a chance to pull it up. Um, you might have heard of the book before, Boy Meets Girl. Is that a, a familiar book with some of you? I'm, I know it, it is with a few of you. Um, if you haven't heard of it, what it is, is it's a sequel to a book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. You might have heard of that one. Um, it's got a few good principles in it, a few good ideas, but part of the problem is, and that we see this a lot with Christian books, is that they have their doctrine entwined into all of it, and you find some really strange ideas. And I stumbled stumbled on this when I was reading Boy Meets Girl. Actually, this this was recommended to me. I was told that I was supposed to read this selection by a Christadelphian because they said that this was the most powerful picture of the atonement that they had ever seen. And they told me as well, you know what? What we should even do is read this selection at youth gatherings so that our young people can understand what the atonement really means. I said, wow, okay. I'll check it out. I'll look at it. I'll read it. Here's what it said. Let's gaze on it together. As we draw close, don't assume that you already know or understand what happened there. Come to the cross as if for the first time. In the book, When God Weeps, Stephen Estes and Joni Erickson Tata give the following account of Christ's death. As you read, refuse to let the scene be familiar but its reality shock you and break your heart. The face that Moses had begged to see, was forbidden to see, was slapped bloody. The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted around his own brow. On your back with you. One raises a mallet to sink in the spike, but the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life, minute by minute, for no man has this power on his own. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? Only by the sun do all things hold together. The victim wills that the soldier live on. He grants the warrior's continued existence. The man swings. As the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm. The sensations it would be capable of, the design, proves flawless. The nerves perform exquisitely. Up you go! They lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during the day, an unearthly, foul odor begins to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls, the apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father, he must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane, and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen his father look at him so. Never felt even the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The sun does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. And it goes on. It says more terrible things that I'm not going to list. Have you ever held your razor tongue? You travel in cliques. You mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The father knows this. But the divine pair have an agreement, and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as it personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure. The mere image of himself sinks drowning into the raw liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind explodes in a single direction. Heaven stops its ears to his cry. The son stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply to him. The Trinity had planned it. The son endured it. The spirit enabled him. The father rejected the son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. After reading that, and after reading it now, I read it every time just to get myself angry. <laughs> because you, you read through this, and I think it's probably one of the most terrible pieces of literature I've ever read. I have, I have a video back home that I show when I'm when I'm doing this with PowerPoint, and it's a quote from, you might have heard of uh, Rick Warren before. He wrote the book, Purpose Driven Life. Back home, he's the pastor of the church, Saddleback, Saddleback Church. It's 22,000 members. He has a big influence. And uh, I have a video of his wife talking about the atonement. This is in their first principles series. And she talks about what it means that Christ is our substitute, she says. This is something you have to understand when you come to the atonement. Jesus is our substitute. And what that means is that he took all of the garbage you've ever committed and put it on himself. And that's what they were reading there. That's what I was reading there. That all the sins you've ever committed were put on Christ, they say. This is a a gross picture, a terrible picture, and it's a lie. It's not true whatsoever. It it almost feels like, I read through it, and you almost feel like you're reading, you you picked up a Greek mythology book, and you read about... uh, this God-man who goes down and who has to die to satisfy the wrath of his father, to appease his angry father. And this is completely backwards from what Scripture teaches us. Whereas Scripture tells us that God gave Christ out of love. Well, the, the main Christian idea is that God gave Christ because he was angry. And Christ had to die because of that. Whereas the scripture tells us that Christ was blameless, we're told here that Christ was a gross sinner. He had all of our sins put on him. And scripture tells us that our sins were forgiven. We're told here that they were paid for. So the view of the atonement that most of the world has is that Jesus was our substitute. That he died in our place. That we were in front of a firing squad We were about to be shot and Jesus jumped in the way and said, no, I'll save you. And that's not how it is. And that's what we're going to see throughout the exhortation. We want to look at what does Scripture say about the atonement? What does it really mean? And as we look at it, we're going to see a beautiful picture that reflects wonderfully on God. I mean, you you look at this picture here, and how does it show God? It shows him in a terrible light. Says the father is this angry being who needed somehow to be pacified. He needed someone to appease him. I want you to just imagine for a minute what that would be like if you gave your son to save this world. And that's what they turn the sacrifice into. How'd that make you feel? Something that maligns your name, that blasphemes who you are, your character. Well, as we're going to see, things are completely different. What we're going to look at today is just a few different points. We're going to see, first off, that God is actually our Savior. God is the Savior. And He was working through Christ. We're going to see as well that God and Christ were working together in the atonement. It wasn't a, a one-on-one face-off where God roared against him. But they were working together as a team. What a beautiful picture it is. We're going to see as well that God forgives our sins that he gave Christ out of love. And that in the atonement, in Christ's death, in his resurrection, it declared God to be righteous. And that was the purpose. So let's begin. We want to look at God as our Savior. Normally when we hear the word Savior, at least for me, I know that my mind automatically goes Christ and it thinks Jesus. And that's perfectly right and that's good. Christ is called our Savior many times, but normally we forget about the aspect of God as our Savior. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. We were actually here last week. We were talking about Mary. We're going we're to read the same song, but only one verse this time. In Luke chapter 1, again, Mary was just told about her giving birth to the Son of God. She went and she visited her cousin Elizabeth and Elizabeth was pregnant as well and they were joyful together and this is what Mary said upon arriving verse 46 and 47 Mary said of Luke 1 my soul doth magnify the lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in god my savior Mary saw god as her savior as the one who is bringing her salvation Right, oftentimes we forget about this aspect of God, that he is the Savior. Let me just read a couple more verses for you that talk about that, so you don't have to turn them all up. Titus 1, verse 3. Paul, writing to Titus, says, God hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So this is something that's mentioned all the time. It's even in the Old Testament. Psalm 24 verse 5, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. If you have a newer translation, it says from God, his Savior. We all know the hymn, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and honor, dominion and power, right? So God is our Savior. My favorite verse on this, I want us all to go to this one, is Isaiah 43 verse 11. Because I think this one makes it the most clear. By no means was Christ saving us from an angry God. but rather, God was the Savior, working with Christ. So we want to switch our way of thinking there. Isaiah 43, verse 11, very succinct and to the point. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior, God says. He's very adamant. I am the savior. I'm the only one. I like to think of it. I like to think of the way that God worked through Christ being kind of like a, a man throwing a life preserver kind of thing. Obviously, Christ is not a life preserver. He's not an inanimate object. But you have God who throws Christ to save us when we're drowning. And what? Who really saved us? The life preserver or the man who threw it? Right? I mean, it's, it's both. Both of them working together are the ones that brought about our salvation. It's the same kind of idea here. God is the Savior, and he worked through Christ to save us. We can't forget that. Because often, when, when we hear this idea, this idea of substitution, what we hear about is a God who is angry with his son, who turned on his son, who forsook and rejected his son, And that's not at all how it was. Instead, when we look through Scripture, what we see is we see a God who was supporting his son, who was giving him strength, and who was there with him throughout the entire time. I want you to think about Genesis 22, when Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac. Think about that example. As you think about it, Think about what role Abraham had in it. We know that that Isaac was representative of Christ. Abraham was representative of God. And what did Abraham do all throughout the sacrifice? He brought Isaac up to the altar. He put him down on the altar. And did he ever leave him? Did Abraham say to Isaac, oh, this is your time now. I'm going to go over there. I'm going to start yelling at you about how much I hate you. And then I'm going to shoot you with something so I don't have to be over there near you. Is that what he said? Or did he stand by his son the whole time? Standing there, giving him support, telling him God will provide. God will take care of things. We know that that's what he did. And we know that that's what God did too. Scripture is very plain in that. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God was with Christ. He did not forsake him. He didn't turn his face away from him. But instead, God was there, strengthening his son, bringing him through it. Second Corinthians 5. We will start at verse 18. Let's read verses 18 and 19. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Here's the important part. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Paul plainly says God was there. He was in Christ. When Christ was hanging there on the cross, God was with him. He was encouraging him, strengthening him to get through. Christ says the same thing of God. Let's go to John 16. John 16, I love, I find these words here so powerful. What Jesus says. They're some of his last words to his disciples. You can imagine him looking at them, looking them in the eye, kind of sad, knowing what they're going to do. But at the same time, with a, with a confidence in his belief in what God will do for him. You look at John Chapter 16, verse 32. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, it is now come, that ye shall be scattered and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus again says, I know that you're all going to leave me, I know that I'll be left alone. You'll forsake me but there is one who will not forsake me. And that's my father. I know he will be with me. I know he will be there with me, bringing me through it, helping me to remember the joy that is set in front of me, and helping me to get through this. See, the picture that we see of the atonement is not at all God looking at Christ in wrath and condemning him and filling him with all of the sins of humanity, but instead, it's a God who is working together with his son to save, to bring life. It wasn't about wrath. It wasn't about anger. You know, we'll see this. I'm, I'll throw out some verses here for you, and I want you to think about this. And if you feel like it, I guess you can call it out. Is that acceptable here? Okay. <laughs> uh, go to John 3.16. Actually, you probably don't even need to go there. You can probably recite the verse. Tell me, is, is this verse, does this tell us that the atonement was about wrath or love? Love. Does anyone here want to recite that so that we all know what it is? Exactly. So God so loved the world. It's not wrath. It doesn't say God was so angry at the world and wanted to kill them all that he sent his son. But it says instead, God loved the world and wanted to give them a way to be saved. So he sent Jesus. Another one in 1 John 4. Let's turn there. (coughs) 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. Let's read this. Starting at verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God towards us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Is that wrath or love? Love. Yeah, that's plainly, obviously love. That is why God sent his son. My, My favorite one here is in Romans 5. Let's come and take a look at this. Romans chapter 5. I think that Paul here, when speaking about the sacrifice of Christ, gives us the strongest or one of the strongest verses here that we have to know that that Christ's sacrifice was about God's love. Romans 5. Let's start at verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's point here is, Christ died for us while we were sinners. Think about this. Rarely will someone even be willing to die for someone who's righteous. You know, Sometimes they will. They'll look at the person and say, well, they've been a good person. You know, I'll, I'll give my life for them. His point is, God shows his love because even when we were wallowing in sin, when we were disgusting, God still sent his son to die and to give us a way to turn around. And that shows God's love. It wasn't about his anger. He didn't have to be appeased. But it was an act of love. So as we can realize those things, that God and Christ are working together because God was the Savior. We can see that God sent Christ because he loved us. We see how well the atonement reflects on our Father. It doesn't tear him down as a a whimsical God who needs a sacrifice. But instead, it shows his goodness. And I think his goodness really, really comes out when we think about this next point about how he forgives sins rather than being paid for them. I want to tell you a story, (coughs) and I want you to uh, try and imagine yourself here. You owe the government, somehow, somehow you got in debt. You owe this government here, the United States, $5 billion. I know, you shouldn't have done that. That That was a bad idea. It's a lot. But, so anyway, somehow it happened, and you owe the government $5 billion. You know you can never pay it back, so you just decide, well, I don't know what to do. I guess, well maybe if I just forget about it, they'll forget about it too. So you, you go through life like normal, you forget about this debt, and you hope that the government forgets. So one day you're eating dinner with your family, you hear the doorbell ring, and you get up in the middle of dinner, you go to answer the door because you're a friendly person. And you, you figure, hey, maybe they'd like to have dinner with us or something. So you open the door and whoa, it's the president. He's standing right in front of you, the president himself, and he looks at you and he says, you, you owe me $5 billion. And you think, oh, that's bad. Right? And and so you, you immediately get down on your knees and you say, please, forgive me. Give me time. Give me a little bit of time and I will repay this. I'll repay the debt. He says, no. You, your children, your wife are all coming with me. You're going to work until you pay me off. I'm selling your house. I'm selling everything you own. Because you owe me $5 billion. As, the, as the, his guards are coming to arrest you, to take your children, take your wife, immediately, since he doesn't have a son, his daughter jumps in the way and says, Wait, Dad. Wait, this just isn't right. I've been saving my whole life, and I have $5 billion. So, here, and she pulls out her checkbook. She writes her dad a check for $5 billion. She gives it to him. You're free. He smiles. He's happy. And he says, have a good life. And he leaves. All right. I have some questions for you. I want you to think about this. Does your freedom, then, have anything at all to do with the president's goodness? Not really. You don't really know. Yeah, it doesn't. Was your debt paid for then, or was it forgiven? It was paid, wasn't it? And the last one, is the president a merciful man? Yeah, at best at best, you can say, well, I don't really know. right?" It didn't seem like it, um, but the best thing you can really say is, I'm not sure. Let's go to Matthew 18, and we'll read what the Bible actually says along these lines. That's the way that many Christians will understand the atonement. Matthew 18. That's the way that many Christians will understand the atonement as God was angry, you owed him a debt, and then his son jumped in the way and saved you. But let's look at what scripture actually tells us. Matthew 18, verses 23 to 27. I want you, I find this part so moving. So I want you to just think about how this relates to you. Matthew 18, 23 to 27. Therefore, is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. When he'd begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. For as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, his wife and his children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Do you see the difference? What power is there in the words that we just read? And look at how differently it reflects on the Father. We're in the same situation. This is about us. We owed God a huge debt from all the sins that we've committed. And yet God doesn't say, pay me now, and his son said, okay, I'll do it instead. But God said, I'll forgive your sin. I'll forgive your debt. Did he ever get paid for it? Did he ever receive what was due to him? No, he didn't. Because he was moved with compassion. Because he was merciful and loving. This completely turns around and the attitude of God that we would have depending on how we understand the atonement. I mean, we could see him as a, I was just reading a biography on Martin Luther. Martin Luther was paranoid of God because he was so afraid of the angry God who forsook his son on the cross and that this God would do the same to him. He spent hours and hours praying and and crying that God would not forsake him because of his understanding of the atonement. And so when we see what scriptures tell us, when we can see the truth in scripture, what a wonderful thing it is, because we can see that God is the savior, that he forgives our sins, and that in no way did he ever forsake his son. No way did he reject the son that he loved. But he was there with Christ. And he forgives because of his compassion. And he sent Christ out of love. What a wonderful God it is that that Scripture shows to us. What a wonderful God it is that the truth shows to us. May we be thankful for what we've been given. So we might then say, well, I understand how all of this reflects on God. I understand how God was our Savior and how the, all these things work together. But then why did Christ die? Why did he have to die if all of this was about God? If you come to Romans 3, I think that's a little bit helpful. And then we'll, we'll delve into that a little bit. And we'll talk about the memorials. Romans chapter 3. <coughs> Romans 3 tells us that Christ's sacrifice, his death on the cross, was all about declaring God to be righteous, to show that God is right in everything, that his Father was the supreme Lord of all creation. Romans 3, let's read verses 24 to 26. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. The purpose of Christ's death was to show that God was right, that he was righteous, that he doesn't make mistakes. And the way that we can understand this is we have to see that God is in a war with the flesh. God despises the sin that comes forth from our flesh. We, we know Mark chapter 7, out of the heart of man proceeds all evil things. Adultery, fornication, murder, Christ lists them. We know Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. God hates the flesh. He hates the sin that comes forth from it. And it's, it, it is the root of sin. That's the first thing that we have to understand in understanding how the atonement declared God's righteousness. The second thing then is that Christ came so that he could destroy that flesh. Let's go to Hebrews 2. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It's time about the sacrifice of Christ. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Notice the quadruple emphasis here in this verse. It talks about the children, that's us, being partakers of flesh and blood, and then it says, he also himself likewise, making sure, did you get this? Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus came in the flesh. And then the writer of the Hebrews gives us an explanation why. That through death, he might destroy the devil. Jesus came in the flesh to destroy the devil. And as we know, that means sin in the flesh. He came to destroy the sin in the flesh. And we can understand that as well by comparing Romans 8 verse 3, seeing that the verses are almost identical in what they're saying. And then instead of the devil, Romans 8 verse 3 tells us sin in the flesh. Every day of his life, Jesus fought that battle against the flesh. Every day he put it down. He never gave in to the temptation. And there was one day of his life when he put it to death, literally. And that day was the day of his crucifixion. And in that, In that death on the cross, when he hung above everyone to see, for centuries to come to see through scripture, he declared God to be righteous because he said, this flesh deserves death even though I have done nothing wrong. I don't deserve death because of my sin, but the flesh because it's the root of sin. This is what it deserves. And so we can see that Christ, hanging on the cross, declared God to be right because he said, I choose the way of my Father, even though my flesh tells me not to. The atonement was all about God. The atonement was all about God's righteousness. It was all about focusing onto him. And so now we come to look at our picture of the atonement here in the bread and the wine. And as we take this, we can think about God's role, working through Christ, giving him strength, forgiving our sins. And we can realize what a glorious, merciful, beautiful God it is that we worship. May we not be led astray by the, the false teachings of Christianity out there, but may we hold to the truth and really look at Scripture and love the word that God has given to us. So as we take the bread and the wine, let us remember God. Remember what the Father did in the atonement.
0: Thank you for listening to the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast. Please subscribe for new episodes and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever service you are listening from to help people find the show when they search for it. If you enjoyed this talk, share it on social media so other people can find it too. For show notes and links to the talk that you just listened to, visit our show page at anchor.fm/gct. We want to encourage everyone to share their thoughts from the talk this week on Facebook or Instagram, where we are at Good Christadelphian Talks, or on Twitter, where we are at gct underscore podcast. If you know of a great talk, we want to know about it too send a suggestion to goodchristadelphiantalks at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media platforms. Thank you for listening. God bless and talk to you next week.